0: Hello, this is Daron Orenstein from best saxophone website ever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. All right, everyone, welcome to the best saxophone podcast ever. And today I have with me Tim Wilcox, who's based in in, uh, Portland, Oregon, and he's been honored with multiple awards. Besides being awarded in Downbeat Magazine as a high school student, Tim was named a Presidential Scholar of the Arts with the honor being bestowed at the White House by President Bill Clinton. And Tim was the recipient of the Stan getz Clifford Brown Fellowship, presented by the National Endowment for the Arts. And since the mid-'90s, Tim has performed and recorded with music greats including David Friesen, George Mitchell, Gino Vanelli, Peter Erskine, uh, Larry Grenadier, and Ingrid Jensen, among many, many others. And with uh, one solo album titled sound architecture under his belt. Tim is currently finishing up his second album to be released in the very near future. So, howdy Tim, welcome to our podcast.
1: Hey, Jerron. Great to talk to you again.
0: Cool, yeah. It's funny Tim and I uh went to college together and so we've got all kinds of like little inside jokes we do like talking with an East Coast accent and sounding like a mafioso or the jerky boys and saying, yeah, how you doing a lot? So um, we'll spare everyone that kind of silliness, but that's what comes to mind when I think of Tim, besides being an amazing uh, sax player. So, um, Tim, can you tell us how you got started in music?
1: Uh, Well, like a lot of kids, you know, around uh, sixth grade or so, you're given the choice of either being in band or choir or being cool. So uh, I chose band, and uh, I I chose the saxophone because I I had the choice of either a snare drum or a saxophone, and the saxophone just looked inherently more interesting than the snare drum um, with all the buttons and it was shiny. Uh, So that's how I ended up picking saxophone. Um, And then uh, I had a really great middle school teacher who kind of hipped me to to jazz really early. Uh, he started sending me home with, you know, Miles Davis records and Charlie Parker Records and uh within the first year of, of starting the saxophone. So I was I was really lucky to have him as a teacher and he uh, brought a lot of really good private teachers into the school system. Uh so I kinda lucked out I think at an early age having uh some really good guidance.
0: Yeah, I mean I know that makes a huge difference, uh you know, where I went to school, there was a really good jazz program as well, and we actually went up uh, to to the Downbeat uh, competition in Oakland years ago, and our band was really, really good, but we got beaten by a band up in, I think it was in Eugene, it might have been your alma mater, and so um, I know that there's some amazing high school jazz coming out of Oregon. Why do you think that your high school program was so successful?
1: Uh, well, I kind of I, I, went to a different high school for a couple of years and uh, ended up transferring. I followed my friend Ricky Swim, who actually interviewed recently, um, to another school, which was kind of like the arts magnet school in Eugene. Um, and they had a really good music program orchestral program choir drama kind of it was more of an art school uh, the first school that I went to was more of a football basketball sort of school and uh, the band kind of existed for you know marching at halftime and stuff like that so um, I knew I wanted to be serious about music and being at the the first high school which I'm not going to name um, wasn't really doing it for me So I made the switch, which was a really good move, um, just being around other kids that were the same age that were pretty serious about um, learning how to play jazz and improvise. um, They wanted to practice. So, yeah, that was a good move for me. And uh, that kind of sums up question, maybe? I don't know. I can't remember what you asked me now.
0: I asked you for your hat size, actually, so it's a little (laughs) off topic, but no, it's all good. No, um, so you knew pretty early on that you wanted to, like, play professionally,
1: right? Yeah, it was just, you know, um, I wasn't really good at any any sports or anything else, and. I I think, you know, I, I kind of was I had a little bit of natural talent at a young age and kind of figured out stuff on my own. Like I would I would figure out a lot of music by ear and and uh you know, stuff I heard on the radio and um so I I think I knew pretty early on that that music was something that um might be able to kind of carry me through life a little bit. Um So, yeah, and I was a really, I was kind of geeky and nerdy, so it fit me well. Um, okay.
0: No, I mean, that's kind of why I gravitated to music as well. It's just something I could be good at. And I don't know, I was really awkward in high school, too. So, <laughs> that was basically my source of self esteem, but it was mm-hmm. a good thing because um, I learned a lot. And, um, that's what made me the brilliant musician that I am today. That's what What?
1: That's what I was, was going to say. say. Yeah.
0: No, but um that's cool so fast forward to now um you know uh I know a lot of the jazz scene. It's it's known for coming out of New York City, but from listening to your, you know, uh preview of your new album, you know, what I heard was New York City level jazz, but all of you guys are from Portland, so obviously a real looks like there's a, a really good scene there. Can you talk a little bit about the jazz scene in Portland?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a lot of really excellent musicians here. Um, be it jazz or rock or classical, um, there's a lot of music going on. Uh, you know, since the economy kind of tanks, Uh, Some of the clubs have started either not having music or hiring duos or trios instead of quartets or quintets, Um, and some of them have just closed. So um, the scene over the past few years has been a little bit rougher than it was when I first moved here. But there's a lot of really kind of great older musicians uh, that have that either. Lived in New York or L.A. for a long time, and they kind of wanted to move to a smaller city um, to either raise a family or, um, you know, they just like the environment in Oregon. Um, it's it's pretty relaxed, and there's a lot of great outdoor activity and stuff like that around here. Um, but you know, there's you might have heard of, you might have heard of John Rose. He's a great tenor saxophonist um and he spent a lot of time in la and moved up here maybe 15 years ago or so he was you know he was in a lot of those big bands down in la the toshiki or toshiko hakiyoshi and uh, uh buddy rich band and he was in shelly man's band so there's some, re- some real heavyweights up here that uh that I feel pretty lucky to, to get to play with or go out in here and play live um, and not have to to live in New York to do it.
0: So you definitely it sounds like you're definitely able to feel challenged um, in the scene there. There's some great players that you get to play oh, with. definitely yeah
1: there's there's some young guys too that are just mind blowing. There's a guy named Greg Goebel a young pianist he's, he's one of the best I've ever heard and um, phenomenal you know, Every time I hear him He just blows me away and, uh, and there's just a lot yeah, A lot of Younger guys moving here From, from bigger cities um, Because the cost of living Is a little bit cheaper And there's a pretty Healthy scene um, Compared to a lot of places And there's a lot of Original music happening Which is really cool yeah. um, And then there's A lot of you know, older guys that are playing standards and kind of keeping that whole thing alive, um, which is nice, too, to go out and hear a band play a bunch of our Blakey tunes and uh, tear it up, old school.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, the music on your albums are definitely more uh, modern and... Uh, I don't know, you've really got your own voice with your original music. Um, can you talk a little bit about the philo- kind of the philosophy behind your latest album?
1: Uh, well, most of the music on the album was written in the past year or two. Uh, there's a couple tunes that, that were actually written quite some time ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, that had just been sitting around and I'd never really done much with them, and they seem to fit really well with this group. Uh, and I guess the concept behind the, the recording was just, uh, I've been playing with these guys for about a year and a half now, the same three other guys. Um, David Goldblatt on piano, who uh, just moved up here from L.A. Uh, about two years ago, really great pianist, um, drummer Charlie Doggett, and bass player, Bill Athens, and they're all really gifted writers too, Um, and I kind of wanted to feature the the sound of the group, you know, the um, kind of special thing that we we feel like we have together in this this formation. Um, It's kind of it's hard to find a group of people that you play with and um, Feel completely comfortable bringing in whatever sort of tune you might have written. Um, explore, you know, we kind of explore all types of different stuff together, and uh, everybody gets along really well, which is really important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I kind of wanted to just showcase the the way the band plays together, and uh, there, there's really no pressure in the band. We just bring stuff in. Um, a lot of stuff, you know, we'll read through once and never play it again, but there's stuff that we'll gravitate towards and uh, that's how the recording ended up sounding the way it does, I think you know. and uh, I don't know if you've listened to there, there were a couple of tracks I sent you that weren't really mixed yet um, they're kind of the more high energy tunes and I, I don't know if those are actually going to make the final cut I kind of like the, the vibe of the album Without those tunes, it's kind of got a nice flow to it without the uh, kind of hyper jazz stuff. So.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of the music sounded very um, emotionally complex. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, this is a happy song, this is a sad song. it's kind of, um, I don't know, a pretty rich spectrum of uh, emotional tone to your music. So, is Are you kind of inspired by things that happen in your real, you know, in your day-to-day life? Or is it more like you're just trying to find a cool way to get from one chord to another and you're just kind of like painting on a canvas?
1: It's kind of a mix of both both things. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear some music that really inspires me or I'll read a book or see a painting or, you know, there's a lot of outside influences. Um, but a lot of times I'll just sit at the piano and kind of dink around and come up with something that that flows together and it'll turn into a song. Um, or sometimes, you know, I'll write an eight bar idea and it'll sit around for a year and then I'll write another section to the tune a year later and it just happens to fit together. Um, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to, you'll write the, the catchy part of the song first and then it's hard to come up with the other part of the tune and not have it sound um, contrived.
0: Yeah, starting tunes is always easy. Finishing them is the hard part.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, A lot of the tunes kind of start off actually as as kind of pop tunes, and then I try to figure out a way to um, twist them a little bit to make them more... uh, jazzy if you will uh, you know to make them more like something that you'd improvise over in the, in the jazz genre um, so I'll, I'll tweak a few chords or change the meter or something but hopefully ch- try to keep the the uh, initial kind of poppiness or hook you know, that, I, that I come up with but uh yeah, you know I don't think there's any one way to write music you can come up with a melody in your head and then go to the piano you know, sometimes you might have a whole entire tune formulated before you even get to the piano and other times you might have to work really hard to to get a tune to come out and you're not always happy but sometimes you just have to kind of live with it accept it and sometimes uh, no. you know after a while it, it starts to make sense and, Sounds good to you.
0: So yeah, I know you play a lot of piano. Um, how has that affected you as a sax player? Just being really proficient on the piano too. You
1: know, I think that's one of the most important things you can do as a as a musician on any instrument other than piano is to to sit down and learn piano, um, just to start out learning your kind of basic two five one progressions and different voicings and. Uh, learn standards. um, To try to to sound decent on the piano um, can really inform your your saxophone playing, the way you you can visualize music. Saxophone's kind of an abstract instrument. It doesn't make a lot of sense visually, um, like the piano does. And With the piano, you can see the shapes and the chords, and and, kind of come up with melodies visually as well as uh, sonically? Is that the right word? <laughs> um, yeah, so piano is, I, I recommend that anybody starting out playing jazz or any, any sort of music to, to sit down and learn theory on the piano and um, it's a great tool for writing.
0: What about so, uh, Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say that you know even um, sitting down at an instrument that you have no idea how to play Um, Sometimes you can come up with ideas on a guitar or um, just by accident. Sometimes the best melodies and kind of harmonic ideas come out of just dinking around with some instrument that you're not very familiar with.
0: Yeah, I've never heard of that as an idea. Um, That's that's pretty cool, and it sounds fun, too. Now, uh, when you say... You recommend people play piano. Do you recommend that they actually get proficient to where they can, I don't know, read music and play fast passages cleanly? Or are you just talking about being able to play chords?
1: Well, I think that uh, everybody ought to at least be able to, to sit down and play basic chord progressions and maybe, you know, read the melody to a standard and, and play the chords in the left hand. Um, but you know, it's good to. I think it's good to try to be as proficient as you can on, on piano. Um, you know, I I play the piano probably more than I play the saxophone when I'm at home, just because it's always out and it's right there, and it's it's really fun for me to to sit around and and play through some standards or try to learn a new tune or just you know take five minutes to try to come up with a, a new idea.
0: So when you do sit down to play the sax, like what does a normal practice session look like for you?
1: Well, these days, um, since having a a young baby in my life, um, practicing is a lot different than it used to be. Like now I'm kind of just uh, trying to maintain things. Like if I've got time to practice, I'll, I'll just work on sound and... Uh, trying to keep my fingers uh, up to speed, you know. Just playing scale patterns. Um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll play through some some classical music. Just some stuff to kind of keep the technique up. So when I go to a gig, I, I feel like I can still uh, improvise and 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 not have the horn get in the way of what I'm trying to to say.
0: Yeah, that's so um, as far as developing your tone and practicing, you said you're working on your tone. What do you do to develop that?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I probably do what a lot of other people do, and that's just long tones. Um, One thing I really like to do is I I take just a four-bar long note, and I uh, put a crescendo on the first half and a decrescendo on the second half, (laughs) And you want the note to kind of just come out of, of air. Like you should start off with just your airstream and then, sorry, I've got a cat attacking objects on the desk here. Um, trying to get the note to kind of just creep out of the airstream so you, you can hear it at um, a very, very low volume level. And then get, getting it up to, you know, fortissimo uh, and then, Decrescendoing and doing the same thing at the end of the note, so, so the note disappears into the air, um, and making sure that your pitch stays steady during the entire thing. So when you you know when you get louder, you don't go flat, um, and that when you're playing really soft, that you're you not getting little bumps in your sound. Um, so it, it's it's almost like you're turning up a a stereo that has a sine wave playing on it. You know you want it to be really steady. And then you, you just do that all over the range of the horn. Um, if you if you want to be really diligent about it, you would do like an entire chromatic scale. But that could take some time. And uh, another thing you want to do is breathe through your nose, in between notes, and try to keep your mouth in the same position uh, from note to note. And you'll notice that this really, after a few notes, it starts to burn. But it's, it's kind of a chops builder. It, um, and it makes you kind of work from your, from your diaphragm instead of relying on your, on your jaw to get a good sound. You know, you want, you, you want your jaw and your lip to be relaxed and you, your air should be doing most of the work. So, um, I don't know, that's a really good long tone exercise. Uh, and then you could, you could apply that to playing scales, trying to do the same thing. Crescendo and crescendoing through a, a four bar phrase or a bar phrase um, while you're moving your fingers and trying to keep the crescendo, you know, um, happening at the same rate that you would if you were just playing one note. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was wondering about is when you say having your diaphragm do more of the work than having your jaw do all the work, what, what do you mean um, when you say having your jaw do all the work?
1: Well, I think a lot of people tend to apply too much pressure from their bottom jaw when they play. Uh-huh. Um, so they get kind of a, a really tight embouchure, you know. Um, so I, I'm trying to, I used to kind of have this problem where my the corners of my mouth were really tight and um, I think I was pinching off the air a little bit. So I, I wasn't getting as big of a sound as I, I could if I would just relax um, the bottom lip and, and let the air do the work, making sure that you have enough pressure behind your air because um, if you, if you're closing off the reed, it doesn't require as much air to play. Um, so I don't. I just I kind of had this really tight mouth for. Uh, for a long time, and uh, recently, just in the past couple of years, I've been really trying to concentrate on loosening up and being more relaxed, and I think it, it helps you get a bigger sound, more vibrant um, sound that has more overtones in it. And uh, you know, if you watch Dexter Gordon or you know, a lot of the Coltrane, a lot of the guys on on YouTube, you'll see that their bottom lip is really kind of relaxed and. um it's not too tight
0: mm-hmm. so speaking of sound, um, you know you definitely have your own unique kind of sound in terms of tone quality and phrasing, and I was wondering, is there anything that you did proactively to find that unique sound or is it something that just sort of happened naturally? I'm just wondering it what it because it's really easy for sax players just to find a player they like and turn into a clone of them what would you attribute um... to the fact that you've been able to find your own sound without sounding like a clone
1: well i think that um... at some point i consciously made a decision to to try to not sound like the guys that i was trying to sound like for years you know i I was really into michael brecker and. um, trying to actually sound, have that same sound or um, Rick Markets, uh Jan Garbarek you know I went through phases trying to sound like other people trying to sound like Sonny Rollins or or Joe Lovano and um, you know I love all of those all of those tenor players and, you know, Cannonball Adderley, Charlie Parker um, but I, th- I think I, I decided that I was going to take what I liked about each one of them and try to kind of roll it into my own thing. But I, I think that I still have a lot of that, you know, you can you can hear the influences in the sounds. Um, you know, and, and doing that, uh, I, I did a riverboat gig for a long time, and prior to doing that, I, I was, you know, pretty intent on having a, a more modern tenor sound, you know, uh, coming out of, like, the Coltrane school of playing... And that gig did not allow me to do that. I had to kinda of go back and listen to some really old guys, you know, Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster and uh try to emulate that style and uh you don't you don't want to offend the eighty year old um cruise ship passengers with your Coltrane train legs. So it was actually kind of a really cool thing going back and and discovering music that I probably should have been listening to all along and trying to edit my playing so it you know it could still I could still feel like I was being creative but within the confines of the of the gig where you know you you kind of have to play more diatonically um, and watch your, your chromaticism and it you know pretty much playing inside um, so that that was actually really good for me, and I think that kind of added to um, the way i I approach playing when I'm playing with my own group or um, playing more modern music nowadays
0: so just speaking generally, taking kind of a a step back and looking at your playing in general, like what would you say were like the two, three, four, whatever things that um allowed you to gain the proficiency you have now? What, what were the most helpful things that you did to get to where you are?
1: Um, well, you know, uh, we had access to a really great saxophone teacher at William Patterson, uh, David Dempsey, and uh, I think one of the best things I did was to kind of study classically with him while I was uh, majoring in jazz at William Patterson. Uh, he just kind of fixed a lot of things that were wrong with my playing some stuff that, you know, some bad habits and and got me into the the habit of practicing classical music and really paying attention to to little minute details like um, you know, how high are my fingers jumping off the, the keys when I play um, as, am I moving my mouth all over the place, am I supporting my air and you can really kind of hear that stuff if you uh Play like through the Bach cello suites that are, you know that are arranged for saxophone on um, stuff stuff like that with big leaps and uh, maybe maybe stuff that you wouldn't necessarily run into when you're playing jazz when you're playing more kind of bebop oriented lines where you don't necessarily have to worry about your technique as much but I think playing that stuff kind of opens up um, what you're able to to hear on the saxophone in terms of uh, not playing so kind of linearly is that a real word? Linear? In, a, in a linear fashion there we go. Uh, linear fashion that sounds fancy uh, so yeah just studying with David Dempsey I thought was was really good for my saxophone playing um, and then of course taking lessons from the other guys at top there, but that was more about improv and uh, less about saxophone technique. Mm-hmm. And then taking some lessons from Rick so that was really cool. Um, just seeing his approach to music. But really, you know, I think practicing. You know, if you're if you're starting out and you want to really uh cover all the bases you you want to practice scale patterns in all twelve keys and play all over the range of the saxophone you know, don't just play one octave, play up to the highest note within the scale and down to the lowest note within the scale um, and just start out with your scale in thirds and then fourths and fifths and sixths sevenths ninths you know all the way up. Um, Uh, stuff like that, Daron. Yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. All right, well, we're pretty much just about out of time, so I was just wondering if you had any parting uh, words of wisdom for up and coming sax players who want to make the leap into playing full time professionally.
1: Uh, learn as many different <laughs> styles of music as you possibly can, and learn as many tunes in as many keys. As you can, um, and you know, don't sneeze at any particular styles because you'll get called to do all of it. Um, so you know, do your homework, I guess. <laughs> it's
0: all about versatility. Yeah, I've been hearing that a lot. That's a pretty common theme with people who play professionally. So very We're- cool.
1: Oh, go or ahead. doubles, too. If if you can double, that'll help you out a lot, too. I can't double, but I wish I could.
0: <laughs> well, it says a lot that you're able to make a living playing sax without the doubles, because a lot of the old school people would just... I was told just basically forget it. If, if you can't double, then you will not make a living playing sax. So it's cool to see well, people who are able to do that.
1: I make a living teaching, too, so it's kind of... <laughs> that's <laughs> you know, not just playing saxophone but um the more instruments you can play the better off you're going to be
0: well cool then the last thing I was going to do is actually kind of put you on the spot and see if um I always like to close with some music by whoever it is I'm interviewing so do you have any recorded tune that or which of your recorded tunes would you like me to play um, at the end of the show? <laughs> okay.
1: Um. Let's see. So you have one on there um, called Vast Crap Perfume Universe. Vast Crap. Vast.
0: Vast Crap. Okay. <laughs> Vast Crap. What was that again?
1: Is it? A, that's probably how it's labeled.
0: Okay. Vast Crap. See, I'm strictly professional here. I'm totally prepared. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about it. So, all right, cool. Well, Tim, thanks so much. I could probably keep blabbing with you for a long time, but I don't want to get people starting to drool on their iPods. Um, But uh, it's awesome having you here. And for those of you who haven't heard Tim, um, I'm just going to tell you is the real deal. You may not have heard of him yet, but... uh, It's my prediction you will be, so uh, definitely check out uh, the recording now. It's it's called Vast Crap and... uh,
1: Perfume Universe.
0: Vast Crap
1: Universe. Perfume Universe.
0: Vast Crap Perfume (laughs) Universe. Um, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it's all about the music. Vast Crap Perfume Universe. I'm just sort of trying to picture what that means. But um, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like a very pleasant thing. But the music absolutely rocks. So thanks again, Tim. Thanks for having and, me,
1: John. Really also, appreciate it.
0: Yeah, of course. So have a good one, and uh, here we go with vast crap perfume universe. Uh, and also, by the way, before uh, I part, I'm just gonna let you know um, I have show notes. And uh, links to Tim's website and stuff like that on the um, best saxophone website ever. Uh, so I'll, I'll be uh, including a um, little recap of the podcast. So you can find it there. And at long last, here we go with Vast Crap Perfume Universe by Tim Wilcox. <laughs>